Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I'm very, very happy to have Brad Schoenfeld on the podcast. Uh, this is Brad's fourth time on the show. Um, I think we almost get one in every year. The last time was about a year ago, episode 181. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very happy to have you back on the show, Brad. These episodes always get a great viewership as they should, uh, because people want to hear from, uh, I guess, the hypertrophy king, uh, at least one of the kings for sure. Uh, you're right up there on my list. And I think a lot of people's lists. So uh, how have things been on your end, Brad? How, how are you keeping? Yeah, good. Uh, so we're, uh, we're managing the pandemic at this point, uh, obviously making some uh, changes as far as how teaching is carried out. And I'm not able to, haven't been able to carry out in-person research over the past uh, year, which has been a bummer. And uh, I'm doing all my training at home at this point. So I'm looking forward to getting back to the gym uh, fairly soon. On home training, Brad, uh, to throw this one at you, I uh, was, I'm the same. I'm training from home. The majority of this year has been. And so I'm, I don't know what it's like over in the US in terms of picking up gym equipment, but here it's like it's sparing. It's very expensive. People are just kind of uh, being kind of merciless uh, in terms of charging great rates but i managed to find a sissy squat and i've got it literally just now it just came uh, on amazon prime like in a couple of days i was like wow uh do you have have you used a sissy squat machine how do you feel about a sissy squat uh, i'm not sure what you mean by a sissy squat i've done i do sissy squats uh, i think they're a great exercise i'm not sure what you mean by the machine i'd have to see because uh, the sissy squat at least the way that it's generally performed is uh either through body basically it's getting on your toes and then uh, using knee flexion without um, hip extension to target the quads. I don't like to use the word isolate, but to target the quads. And uh, I actually do that at home and, and I use a weighted vest uh, to enhance the effect. Uh, so, so I keep the reps in, in a more moderate range that way to enhance the loading effect. But uh, yeah, I, I love the exercise that... Uh, targets the rectus femoris, at least theoretically. It's uh, actually a study I'm looking to carry out would look to uh, better delineate. We don't, we don't have any good um, research on sissy squats in terms of what they're actually doing as far as muscular wise. So anyway, it's a study I'd like to carry out to try to better uh, determine what mus muscles are involved. Cool. Yeah. And the, uh, the body weight one is one I'd been using and so I was just, I, I, the machine essentially does very similar, but it locks your shins vertically. And then it has like a pad behind your uh, knees and you can just kind of like, you can squat back or you can like sit back, but again, virtually isolating the quads. Yeah. Send me the link. I'd like to check that out. I've yeah. You, maybe you want to pick one up. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. uh, so yeah. Uh, anyway, I'm glad that yeah you're able to train from home and they're like a I guess it's uh, late in the stages now but uh, you would have been a good voice in how people can still do a lot from home with even body weight exercises when you kind of leverage things correctly and you really challenge muscle groups and I think in many ways it's made people or at least bodybuilders have to get a little bit smarter at least for a period of time where they're training from home in terms of like what can they do add deficits add pauses uh, these sort of things so uh, yeah, it's been a good time for that. But I, I wanted to talk to you first about a paper that you shared a while ago. Um, and I think a lot of people have been interested in this paper. And I mean, as ever, it, it's one paper and it's probably adding some evidence in some corner. Uh, but it was the paper was named Is Stronger Better? Influence of a Strength Phase Followed by a Hypertrophy Phase on Muscular Adaptations in Resistance Trained Men. And that was by Carvalho et al. 2020. Uh, and essentially, they had two groups of men, uh, one of them kind of followed the hypertrophy phase the whole way through. And one of them had a kind of strength focus phase for a few weeks before going into the hypertrophy phase. And they were seen to have slightly better quad hypertrophy. And so the researchers concluded strength oriented training phase allowed participants to lift heavier loads during the hypertrophy oriented training period, increase mechanical tension, and that ultimately led to greater hypertrophic adaptation. And I just wanted to know, Brad, what your thoughts were around this paper and kind of that kind of strength phases and that phasic approach and what you might deem to be the benefit there. Yeah, it was an interesting study. Now, first of all, very short term, I, and I'm, uh, it was a couple months ago, so I'm struggling to remember some of the specifics of it at this point. But I, I like it. First of all, it, it um, supports some of my confirmation biases. That's something I've used in practice. And really, this was the first study to to really look at that in a controlled fashion. Um, 
So it was interesting. Now, the results were not outstanding as far as like the differences. So they were, I would say, modest differences. But it, it did seem, uh, based upon the outcome study, that there was a potentiating effect that the strength phase ended up having a greater effect on the, so basically it was four weeks strength and four weeks hypertrophy versus just doing eight weeks of hypertrophy, if I'm recalling the uh, specifics. Um, and uh, there was a potentiating effect. Now, um, the logical rationale behind that, and certainly this is from my anecdotal experience, is that, and, and as the authors did conclude, that there is a greater uh, ability to utilize heavier loads at your moderate load training, that by training a, a strength phase first, you get stronger in that uh, period of time, which then has a carryover effect into the amount of load that you can use during your uh, during your hypertrophy phase. And conceivably, we know that mechanical tension is the a primary driver of muscle hypertrophy. So if at a given loading range, uh, repetition zone, whatever you want to call that, uh, you can utilize a, a higher amount of load. Again, theoretically, that would promote greater hypertrophy. And, and in this study, that seemed to show that. So Again, first of all, as you did mention out astutely, one study is never a be-all, end-all. It's a, just a piece of a puzzle. So we need replication of the study. Certainly the results weren't eye-popping that you'd say, wow, that really had a huge effect. But um, for for the average, and this is where you look at the practical meaningfulness. And you know, if you're the average guy that just wants to gain some muscle and uh, you know a little bit of strength, some strength, and uh, you're, you're, it's not like you're uh, looking to be a bodybuilder, then probably it's not going to make that much difference. But if we're looking at it from a high-level athlete or a bodybuilding perspective, could that be practically meaningful? Yeah. yeah. So again, th these are where these are the nuances where we need more studies to really draw stronger conclusions. For sure. Yeah, I think I I, I remember I've seen a few people's takes on it after they've read it and uh, they took, reviewed it in mass. I think uh, my, uh, Dr. Zerdos was reviewing it and he was saying how uh, the fact that they grew a lot in the like phase right after the strength phase and then it kind of petered off. Uh, whereas, and similarly, the other straight hypertrophy group, they grew a lot at the start and then it kind of dwindled. So it was a case of, and uh, they spoke about the fact that it was like, it was four times eight to 12, all to failure, 60 second rest period, um, which is pretty intense. So they kind of said maybe there was an overreaching effect. And I think you have also got a potentially a bit of a bias and you think overreaching may be something beneficial in, in some circumstances. In short term, yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know if we can get into that, but uh, I, I do, uh, again, this has not been well research. So a lot of this, and hopefully what uh, I always, when I, as an educator, want to make people aware that we, we always, people think that research, we can just go to the research and give us answers. There's so much we still don't know. And there's so many gaps in the literature, hypertrophy wise. Uh, so the application in an applied science, such as exercise, uh, the application of research, research can provide general guidelines. And then we need to utilize our own uh, expertise uh, from an evidence-based standpoint, really to draw inferential conclusions. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, I think it's, that unfortunately leads people then to kind of poo-poo science often, uh, and especially because they talk about the people it's done on and everything. And uh, I think that, we- that, that, I'd say that that's a, uh, that's a straw man and that's a, uh, misguided. I can use other words, but I'll just say it's yeah. it's a misguided thought process because dismissing science. Uh, I like to use the analogy that when you go out fishing, and if you ever go deep sea fishing, I know England has some some good uh, fishing at deep sea. So when you go out fishing, you don't just go in a boat and then say, "All right, this looks like a good spot. We'll drop the line." Or guess you could, but that would be like not using science. What you do is you go out in a boat, and then they have sonar which tells you where the fish are. And then you drop your line, you have a better chance of catching fish if you're going to go where the fish are. And similarly, when you're using science, you use it to get you in the ballpark to, to draw guidelines, general guidelines. And uh, when people dismiss studies that are done on untrained individuals, it's just kind of silly that it doesn't, it doesn't mean it has no relevance. It's the generalizability is going to be less, of course, 
uh, in when we're talking about training status, but in some cases not. I mean, you'd have to look at what the design of the study is set to do. There's some cases where I would argue that an untrained population might gain better insights. And, and if we have a little time, I'll indulge you that uh, I carried out a study on the mind-muscle connection. And I specifically chose an untrained population. Why? Because in a trained population, I can't know what's in their heads. And generally, they're going to have their own ideas that they're training a certain way to try to change someone's uh, mindset as to going with an internal versus an external focus. So mind muscle thinking about the muscle versus thinking about just getting the weight up. I don't know whether they're doing that or not. And it's very difficult once you have developed these habits to untrain someone. Uh, whereas with a newbie, you're basically, they're, a, they're clay that you can mold. And uh, the thought process is, is that we can get a better idea as to what the actual effects were of my muscle connection in someone who hasn't, who doesn't have a preconceived notion. So, so again, the, the, these are when you hear these types of things, I, I know this is something I've been fighting ever since I became an educator is the, and, and look, I, I mean, one of the things, I think one of the reasons that my research has become so, um, has been followed so much is because I'm, I'm a bro and I, I came from being a practitioner where uh, I was a personal trainer for many years. And really everything that I study was based upon things that I thought about while as a trainer saying, well, why hasn't this been studied? Why hasn't that been studied? And, and getting insights into actual practical application. And the pra so the practitioners who dismiss research and the researchers who dismiss the practitioners are just, to me, they're, um, they're really focusing on the wrong, um, on the wrong things. You know, they, it's, it's combining the two. You really to drive the field forward, both camps need each other and they're interactive. They're not dichotomous. Yeah. So, um, I, I just think it's so important for practitioners to embrace research, <clears throat> excuse me, and re uh, researchers to embrace practitioners if we really want to move the field forward and if both groups want to uh, see um, better practice, yeah. uh, better the better tra uh, translation of science into practice. Yeah, it's uh, I'm incredibly thankful for people like you, Brad, because again, you will get the bros who poo-poo the science, but hey, when the scientist themselves is a bro, it makes it a lot more compelling for people to follow it. And like you said, it's kind of like the science is giving us that zone of where to fish and then the practice is letting us identify, oh, seems they're biting over here. Let's go over here. The science right. isn't said to go there, but mm, exactly. it seems to be working for sure. And, and, and by the way, similarly, to uh, continue that analogy, as you kind of said, if the sonar finds fish and you drop your line, nothing's biting. You don't just stay there and say, yeah. well, the science says that it's it. You're going to go to another spot. So that's where the expertise comes in, in knowing when to leave that spot and, uh, and to go elsewhere. So really science gets you in the ballpark, but then everyone becomes their own N equals one experiment. And we need to, uh, when I do a research study on, on the vast majority of topics, there is a wide spectrum of individual responses. Some people with the same exact routine are getting 20, 25% growth and other people are getting zero or yeah. close to zero. And uh, understanding uh, how the application of this science translates into the individual is where the true expertise comes in. I wonder if you see this, Brad, uh, it's something that comes up at least quite a lot for the the kind of the the people that do dig into the science and uh, definitely put myself there where you'll be told you're overthinking things you're you're trying too hard like your results don't match how much you're thinking about what you're doing and i definitely see some credence to that because you can spend too much looking at things and not putting it into practice but like you said there are people at the other end of the bell curve and i wonder if you've seen it where almost anything works for them. So they don't have to think too hard. And so it can be probably frustrating for the person who isn't maybe seeing as best results as they'd hope. And they're really, really thinking, so like, oh, I need to try this because like this seems to be what science is alludicating to. And let, let's see if I'm not getting great results from just trying what this guy is doing. Um, do, you have, do you ever see that frustration? Do you get that frustration? Do you kind of see what I'm saying there, Brad? I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Absolutely. So uh, certainly I think that hard gainers, people who have a difficult time or poor responders, some people call them, 
uh, the scientific uh, the, the scientific process becomes more important for those people to get them gains. Uh, your bodybuilder who touches a weight and all of a sudden seems to blow up, uh, they're blow up muscular wise. So, you know, get gains. <laughs> Uh, can appreciate and, you know, why isn't that working for you? It works for me type of thing. But I'd also say that the people who are saying, well, this is working for me, it doesn't mean something else might work better. And that's, I think, another thing that gets lost is that, um, look, I've consulted with some of the top bodybuilders in the profession, uh, both uh, Natty and, and IFBB pros, uh, and have been able to help them improve upon physiques that when most people look at them, they're like, oh my God, that's perfection. Uh, just because you are getting results doesn't mean that results might not be better if you did something else. So you need a comparative to to really understand that. I love that. Uh, I think that's so true. And uh, one of the things actually I know you've changed your mind over uh, or changed your mind over over the past years, uh, something you've been investigating and you recently uh, did a systematic review slash meta-analysis on training to failure for strength and hypertrophy. And I'd love to hear kind of what you did, uh, what you found, and and then we dig into like some of the practical take-homes. I know you, you wrote a good article on that as well. Yeah, I, I wrote a blog post that's on my site. If uh, people want to take a look on that's lookgreatnaked.com. That's look great naked, not look good naked. I've heard that look good naked uh, is a site that you might not want to have your kids <laughs> go to. I have not not indulged in that, but uh, look great naked and I have a blog post on that. So yeah, I uh, carried out or I collaborated on a uh, made analysis with my colleague, Jozo Gurgic. Uh, who led the way. He was the lead author on the paper. And uh, we have some other terrific researchers uh, that collaborated on that. And um, in the short course is that uh, from a high, so strength-wise, there was nothing, uh, the, no benefit to failure whatsoever. And in fact, when volume uh, was equated, um, there was uh, a benefit to not training to failure. So basically the uh, uh, training to failure because it attenuates the amount of volume that you can do. Uh, ultimately, it showed somewhat of a better effect. Now, hypertrophy wise, uh, there was a little bit of a, a nuance there in that there was no, really no benefit to uh, training to failure versus not training to failure. However, when we tried to tease out, we did what's called a sub-analysis of trained subjects versus untrained subjects. There was a modest benefit to training to failure in people who had resistance training experience. Now, I want to say there's a couple of caveats to this. First of all, there was only a few uh, few studies. So when you're dealing with the sub-analysis, you have to look at how many studies. And I believe there were three or four. I don't recall uh, specifically. It's been a while since we carried out the study, the meta-analysis. But there was, there was a, only a few, a handful of studies. And that, uh, like the addition of one study can drastically change that then. So, you know, when you have a lot of studies on the topic, then when another study comes out, it's really not going to change things that much in this case. And what I would say is, is that we had to exclude a study uh, by uh, Carroll et al. Uh, carried out uh, with the colleague of mine, Mike Stone's lab at uh, East Tennessee State. And they showed not only no benefit to failure training, but they showed a somewhat of a, an attenuated effect. And we had to exclude that because our inclusion criteria said that we can't have studies that had a aerobic component. And that study happened to also include a sprinting, a sprinting protocol. So I'm not sure that there is evidence that concurrent training, uh, adding in aerobic training with Resistance training can have negative effects on hypertrophy. That's why we had that as an exclusion criteria. Given the modest, uh, you know, uh, protocol, the sprinting protocol, we had to exclude it, or we, we did this a priori before the study, so we we didn't know. Um, I, I'm uh, I'm hesitant to think that that really would make much difference in that particular study. And if we would have added that study in, it uh, would have negated those results which weren't that much anyway. And then there was a subsequent study that came out from a colleague of mine, Clayton Labardi's lab in Brazil in trained subjects, again, showing no benefit. So uh, if you're taking this as a whole, you'd say, well, you don't need to train to failure. Well, as I wrote in my blog post, there's a number of things we need to consider. 
Um, there are gaps in the literature. Uh, the studies, the, the primary one that I would point out is that this is not a binary choice, meaning training to failure versus not training to failure. All of the studies that have been done to date either had every set, so the multi-set protocols, either every set to failure versus every set not to failure. It might've been three sets in the, uh, I think there might've been one study that was a single set study. I don't, again, I, the particulars of them were going back six months when we did the reviews on each of these studies, but the vast majority, they were um, multi-set studies, some three sets, four sets, five sets. Um, it could be that doing five sets, to, now I, I don't necessarily think this is the case, but over time would have negate, had negative effects. It might be that somewhat shorter uh, protocols would have been, um, had positive effects in that regard. I'll get to that in a minute. But certainly you can do, uh, and most people I think, certainly in the protocols that I espouse, don't train every set to failure. Um, they're gonna have one set to failure, like the last set to failure, maybe two sets to failure. And, and then what are the other sets? Are they uh, RIR of one and RIR of two? And So it could be different things. It could be the first set an RIR of two, second set an RIR of one, and then the final set to failure or other iterations. It's, it's an almost endless um, array of different uh, choices you have with this. And then the other variables that uh, look into that as to what were the exercise selection that is involved. So along with that, uh, the exercises, uh, multi-joint exercises uh, versus single joint exercises. Uh, if you do multiple sets of squats to failure consistently, that's gonna have a much more taxing effect than if you do, let's say multiple sets of uh, standing lateral raises. Uh, to failure. So again, things to take into consideration. Age is something to take into consideration. Uh, when I was 20, my recovery ability is a lot greater than it is now for me. Uh, so I need more uh, time uh, between sessions. Generally, I, uh, I look to have uh, I portion my rest recovery uh, to a greater extent now. And uh, Training to failure, I don't do as much as I, I did. Uh, more uh, conservative with it. Um, and I, again, I, I'd also say that um, when we're looking at the totality of the um, of the variables, there, there's an interaction. So your rest intervals are going to interact with that. So if you have shorter rest intervals with uh, training to failure. Now, look, I'd also say that multiple studies have uh, shown that, including ones that I've done, I, I basically have, when I carry out studies, they're all training to, all sets are training to fail, not when I'm looking at training to failure, when I'm looking at almost anything. And the reason I do that is because the RAR method, although it's validated, it's difficult to implement in subjects. Like get, you have to acclimate them to it and th there's a learning curve that happens with them. Uh, so in, unless I'm recruiting subjects that already have experience with RIR, which I'd, it would take me forever to recruit subjects in that, it's just easier to, it's something that I can control, uh, but it's a factor then that needs to be taken as potentially a limitation to the study. Now in short term, here's what I will, here's where I'm going with this. In short term context, I, I don't think that you're going to overtrain by doing four, six, probably eight weeks of training to failure, even on every set. But you might be getting there at that point. It might be to a point where that is maximally overreached. And, and with some people, they might be overtrained. So um, at what point does that happen? Well, what I'd say as far as that goes is that not only is it not a binary choice per workout where you can do like just the last set to failure or two of your four sets to failure or whatever. But you also can periodize failure training where you have a period that, that goes into an overreaching phase, which we kind of touched on earlier, where there's more training to failure, where you're really looking to push your body towards the edge of a cliff. I like to use, um, as you can tell, I'm big on analogies. But um, when you can take yourself to the edge of a cliff, without going over the cliff. So if going over the cliff is overtraining, if you can push yourself to the edge of that cliff and then pull yourself back with a active recovery period, a deload phase, 
conceivably that can uh, result in an enhanced response. And it's not something that's been well studied, but there is some preliminary evidence that uh, working towards an overreaching phase can have a super compensatory effect. Uh, so you can super compensate uh, proteins and, and optimize a hypertrophic response. And certainly that's something I've done, implemented when I've uh, consulted uh, with individuals on high level bodybuilders to maximize results for a given competition. Hey, Pascal here. I just wanted to take the moment to talk about our membership site. Inside, you'll find a thriving forum, an extensive exercise library, courses, presentations, and research reviews. All I need you to do is hit the link in the description below and sign up. Amazing, Brad. I, I think a point I like to just repeat is the non-binary choice. I think a lot of the time, again, this is where you get the two camps of the science guys saying, oh, don't train to failure then. And then you get the other camp who are just like the, the bros who have always trained to failure and they're like, oh, right. this is just, why can't we meet in the middle, which is kind of what we're talking about here and where now and then it might be a wise idea to periodize failure. And I guess one of the things you brought up is to train with reps and reserve, you kind of have to have trained to failure anyway. So you're going to have to do it at some stage. Yeah, right. uh, and I guess, unfortunately, that becomes a, a lot of people's arguments against reps and reserve in that you don't know how to train to failure. Um, and I almost see it as sometimes like a mystic thing. People talk about, oh, like I, I train at this intensity. You wouldn't know about it. Only some people can push themselves to this point. And for me, at least, training to failure is the easier option because there's no thinking involved. When I have to leave some in the tank, I have to stop myself. Yeah. I, I don't know if that's the same for you, Brad. But yeah, and I grew, look, uh, as we touched on earlier, I grew up as a bro with the all-out mentality. And it's, uh, I mean, I uh, when I was getting into training and, and for many years, up until fairly recently, I mean, within the past decade, um, had uh, all my, basically all my training was at failure. Maybe, uh, you know, I, I do a warm up sets or whatever, a few warm up set or two. But after that, I mean, it was just this bro mentality, not only going to failure, but then also having uh, advanced training techniques and, you know, forced reps or uh, drop sets, et cetera. And then this is the, th that is the mindset of a lot of bodybuilders. And um, it works, but I, I, looking back, I was overtrained at points uh, throughout my career. Uh, and I, I think the, this is again, where research can be enlightening. Now, look, here's another thing I will say. That's, a, I think a very important point when we talk about, um, when we, when we talk about resistance trained individuals, the difference. So when I do studies in resistance trained individuals, first of all, there's a, a span that, so my criteria is they've been training a minimum of one year consistently three days a week. Uh, with certain caveats to the exercises, both upper and lower body usually. Um, the I will tell you there is a very wide gamut. So you, you have to set criteria. Uh, uh, there's a very wide gamut as to the types of people that come into the study with that. So people you can be training and some of them, have, and they'll tell me, yeah, you train to failure. Yeah, occasionally. Well, it's obvious they've never trained to failure. You know, and what they thought was training to failure was not training to failure. Uh, and even at the, so I get, there's a few that are really advanced, but they're um, muddled in with the other subjects and you don't get uh, to tease out. I, I do hypothesize that as you get higher and higher, some, someone like yourself, closer to your genetic ceiling, that is where I think there's a greater need to train to failure. Certainly for a newbie, I don't think there's much relevance to it. As long as you're training with a, a approaching, uh, you know, an RIR of one or two, maybe even three, that you're going to get the major vast majority, if not all your gains. But when you are looking to squeeze out those last couple of pounds of muscle growth, as you're getting, getting closer and closer to your genetic ceiling, uh, that is where taking your body beyond its present state uh, might benefit through uh, select more selective use of failure training. And again, uh, it's just, this is where gaps in the literature come. Try getting a group of bodybuilders to uh, just do training to failure versus not training to failure and changing their, it's just extremely difficult mm -hmm. to carry out these studies. And without that, we need to use this is where the research again can provide guidelines and we need to use our expertise 
uh, in drawing evidence-based uh, guideline, uh, uh, an evidence-based individual approach. And just to clarify, Brad, when we talk about training to failure, what is the kind of definition in most research? Yeah, and that's even another um, interesting question. So a colleague of mine, James Steele, has done a lot of work calling it a set endpoint. He uh, uses the term, what is your set endpoint? And um, whether they would have trained to failure in the James Steele definition, probably not. I mean, look, in my studies too, um, I would say it's more, so we say that it's uh, the definition I always use is that uh, they can't do another rep in good form. However, if I have the number one goal in a study, obviously is to carry out a good study, but it's not to get a subject harmed, to, to have them hurt. Yeah. I will never, you know, that, that's your responsibility as a researcher. If a subject's saying, I can't do anymore, you can't make, it's, this isn't like where I'm their trainer and I'm pushing them and trying to, uh, my number one responsibility in a study, if someone is, say, they're doing a squat and they're saying, look, I just can't do another one, we, they racked away. Um, so could they maybe have gotten another rep? Yeah. Now, I'm not there. I, I have actually not carried out myself a study on failure training. Uh, so I've not, that's not been something that I have uh, looked at. If I was doing that, I would have to be more uh, concrete in that respect. But my, uh, the thought process is generally, it's the ability to carry out uh, a repetition in good form. And when form starts to break down, there's subjectivity to that. And, um, you know, is it the point where they're, the bar is just pinned to their chest or they, uh, they hit the ground, they can't get up for another squat? Technically, you could say that's failure, but uh, I'm not really sure we need to go to that route, whether that now maybe at the highest of levels, that is something that is necessary. Difficult again to to say. Um, And that I would say would be a limitation in the research if if that is your uh, true definition. I again, I would question that I, I don't really I think that might be splitting hairs and and doesn't. Uh, isn't really that much uh, that of that much relevance, but could it be? Uh, I can't say for sure it isn't. I guess if if anything, people might say people aren't training to full failure and then they can benefit maybe further away from failure. If anything, it's an argument for reps in reserve versus, yeah. So um, I can't remember what the, oh, I had something else in mind and it's completely gone. Uh, but um yeah, in terms of the reps in reserve, uh, I think it would be helpful to listeners at least where you think the cutoff point is for how how easy is too easy for someone who is the majority of listeners who have been training, I would imagine, three plus years. So, or probably on average, five plus. So this is another interesting uh, question. Now, one of the things you have to remember is, is that it's going to somewhat depend upon what loading zone you're, you're talking about. If you're talking about... Um, sets of five and you're talking an RIR four while you're doing one rep of five reps. So you're doing your first rep. Is that sufficient? Probably not. uh, Certainly from a hypertrophic standpoint. Um, And if you're doing a set of 10 uh, again, where is it now, now when you start to get up to 20 and 30, there is some evidence that you need to train closer to failure as you get up there. However, that's, that is still more um, speculative. We, we, we seem to, again, people seem to feel that this is uh, really engraved in stone. Uh, it's not. The, we don't have a lot of evidence. I was involved in carrying out, actually, so I, I will say, I was involved in, in that study uh, with failure. I didn't carry that out. So I collaborated on that study to failure, but I didn't carry it out. It was carried out with a colleagues of mine in Brazil. Um and again, the criteria, so I wasn't there when they, uh, I didn't supervise, wasn't there when, you know, supervising the training, but the um, criteria was that they couldn't do another rep in proper form for that. But we looked at um, a moderate rep range, so 10 reps versus a higher rep range, or 20 uh, reps. Um, and then we looked at RIR and it, it turned out, uh, well, we, we looked at training to failure at a, it wasn't RIR specifically, but it was at a percentage of their one RM. And uh, 
they needed to go to a higher percentage of uh, of failure or, or of uh, they fa- training to failure became more important as they get uh, with the higher rep group. But that doesn't mean that they couldn't have gotten if they had. So we looked again, it was binary. If they had have done an RIR of three, could they have gotten the same results? We don't know from that study. So it was looking again at, at binary outcomes, you know, what, dichotomous, where you're doing one versus another. So let's say 75% of your uh, ability of your uh, failure rate versus going to true failure. It doesn't mean that if you had have gotten closer to failure, it might not have had the same thing. And what I would say is, I, I mean, a general guideline would be, I think, somewhere between one to, this is, again, just personal, my personal view. Uh, for your more moderate, like your hypertrophy range, which uh, if we're talking about going hypertrophy is going to be more indicative of what most people train in. So let's say you're six or eight to 15 RMs. Uh, an RIR of one to three, somewhere in that range, would be uh, sufficient to optimize the majority of your gains. But I do, again, personally, despite uh, the results of the study, and maybe it's my confirmation bias, and my former bro perspective still kicking in, but I, I do think there is a benefit uh, as we get closer to our genetic ceiling as for more advanced trainees to have uh, some training that goes to failure uh, in there. Cool. And that I, and I also think that as we get closer to our genetic ceiling, that even the sets not to failure should be more one, an RIR of one rather than an RIR of three. Okay. Yeah. It's uh, the, in terms of the failure, it's the way I'd always kind of, I guess, no RIR is what I call if I couldn't do another good rep. And I think Correct. most people, when you get to a level of advancement where you've trained like every movement to that point, you, you, you know, if you can't you, you do know what it is. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I always think if, if people are thinking there's benefit to going past that, when we consider mechanical tension through the muscle, you're getting much less when you're having to use momentum, form broke down, compensation through other muscle groups coming in. So I, I personally can't see why that benefit would be there apart from like knowing you've gone and hit that wall, but the risk are just so high at that point. Well, you also have to recognize, and this is, I think, something that is lost in uh, translation, particularly with bodybuilders. There is a systemic effect on the neuromuscular system and, and ultimately uh, the endocrine system as well, uh, where w- when you under, when you over uh, train, if you will, when you over have overexertion, and then under recover, uh, that can cause an inability for maximal muscle protein synthesis. So it's it's not only the mechanical, what you're talking about is the uh, effect while the set is going on, but we also have to rem- uh, think of what happens after the workout is over and how, the, how what we did during that workout is affecting post-workout recovery. Uh, so it's all interactive. It's These are things that, a lot of times we get, we lose the focus of the forest from the trees by just thinking, well, mechanical tension, we're thinking mechanistically is what's going on during the set. But we also have to think of the effects that the training is having on our uh, systemically. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why uh, RAR can be helpful because Agreed. it allows you to know you've overloaded today and then in this session, but next week you could go a little bit harder because you've left that capacity to whereas when you kind of if your route to growth is always intensity and adding more intensity ultimately i could see that leading to injury and they might be able to accumulate more volume leaving reps and reserves so maybe actually it's i think maybe advanced trainees could pull back to get more and also i think probably exercise selection but that's probably a different discussion they could probably be very careful about that so, so again, you raise a really great point. And, and one of the things, so people can either undersimplify or, or uh, overcomplicate the process. I would say, so when we're talking about the general public, and I think this is where uh, things get kind of murky sometimes too, for the general public uh, who are satisfied with getting 90% of their results, just doing the same things, or, you know, or roughly when I say the same things, but training hard, relatively hard, and putting in the effort and just getting in the gym three days a week or so, 
you're going to get the vast majority of your gains. Where it becomes complicated, and I don't think it's overcomplicating things, is for someone like yourself or people who are really high-level uh, bodybuilders, athletes, where you're looking to maximize results. And, and the difference between gaining a, an extra pound of muscle is the difference between winning or losing a competition or two. Um, and that's where really getting to know your body, to um, look at um, cycling, not not looking at things dichotomously where, where, you, know, where, where you can do, uh, let's say, four weeks at a given RIR and then reevaluate, have differing um, training splits that are going on to uh, frequencies and volumes, et cetera. And uh, th that's where really the art of, of training comes in. So th that's where the underlying science can just tell us, hey, look, it's giving us our basic guidelines. And for the majority of people, you do this, you're going to have to tweak a little, but you can get really good results with some tweaking, just doing your three days a week and training hard and then, you know, manipulating somewhat based upon your uh, progress. But for the more advanced athlete who really wants to get everything they can out of their genetic uh, potential, particularly when you're a hard gainer, uh, it just becomes more and more important to have this understanding to experiment and to basically you're, you're a continuing experiment and uh, you need to be, you need to be systematic as well. So when we make changes, I think one of the things that people uh, that bodybuilders sometimes do uh, misguidedly is to make multiple changes and then they don't know whether what's going right or wrong. When you make changes, you should be making changes with one, maybe two, depending upon how you're doing it, uh, variables so that you can really try to isolate depending upon what you're doing uh, or else you're, you don't know what might be working and what isn't. And then you can assess and then redo. And, and look, if, to be a, a high level bodybuilder takes years and years. Uh, certainly you can at least to reach your maximal potential. So I shouldn't say you can be a very good bodybuilder, especially if you have great genetics in a fairly short period of time. And especially the people who are using certain pharmacological aids to help them, uh, that can really uh, step up the process. But uh, again, to reach your genetic potential, uh, that's something that does take quite a while and requires uh, the proper mindset. Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. I know that's something you've written about in your textbook, uh, which is fantastic. And you very nicely sent me out a copy, which I was very, very grateful for. Because, I mean, it's something if people are listening and they enjoyed this chat and you like the science and maybe you're a hard gainer or you want to help hard gainers or you just want to get the best results, you need to pick it up. But you spoke in there about kind of almost as if your genetic potential is a myth in that not many people reach it. And I know... Uh, there seems to be people who think you reach it very quickly and that I think you kind of, I think a lot of us know you kind of get rapid gains, then plateau, but you're not at your maximum. And there's still quite, for me, at least, uh, I know I've continued to grow. It's taken a long time. It's slow, but definitely I started seeing myself as like, oh, now I'm seeing muscle I never thought I'd be able to get. And if I had the mindset, oh, I've kind of hit that maximum at like 25 years old or whatever, I would have like kind of just stopped and not seen that extra and then maybe i would have thought everyone bigger than me was on steroids or whatever uh, which i think is another unfortunate thing but yeah i mean uh, if you want to speak to whether you think many of us actually reach that genetic so i don't first of all i don't think anyone ever reaches their genetic thing so first of all it's a self-defeating thought process yeah. so if you thought you've like you, you touched on if you think you've reached your genetic ceiling then you have because you're never going to go bad basically you've lost your motivation to continue on. Uh, I don't, so my view is you're going to get close. A lot of people, a lot of high level bodybuilders get very close to the genetic ceiling. I'm sure you're close to your genetic ceiling. How would anyone ever know that they've hit their genetic ceiling? You don't because you have, you'd have to try an endless array of, of manipulation of variables to see whether that would, it's impossible to know. 
So you can never study a topic like that to see has someone reached a genetic uh, ceiling. It's an impossible uh, research project. Uh, and what I will say to that too, is that I've worked, consulted with many very high level bodybuilders. I've never worked with one that I haven't been able to help improve upon. Now, again, they don't see massive gains like they would have when they were first starting out. Your, your majority of gains will be achieved within your first year or so of training. Absolutely. But um, obviously diet is going to enter into it too, the manipulation of diet to optimize the process. But uh, it comes down to experimentation, to understanding um, what they have done, what they could potentially do, and then being systematic in the manipulation. But yeah, uh, I, I would wholeheartedly say that the thought that people have reached, there is a genetic ceiling, but it's a hypothetical ceiling because no one ever ultimately reaches that ceiling. Yeah. No, I think that's very well said. And I think body follows mind always with those sort of things. And yep. it's, I, I get why people want because maybe they can decide they've reached their capacity for wanting to try. <laughs> uh, but I don't know if you can say that's definitely your genetic ceiling. Uh, I think that's very well said. And I always think maybe people reach a point of which, I don't know, they start having family, kids, uh, more commitments, and they just can't put the time towards the training like they used to when they were younger. And they kind of hit that yeah. life ceiling, as it were, because it, it does get more and more challenging, as we know, as you're advanced to juggle like training volume and the recovery process and everything. And I think if you're, if you're having a career and kids and family, like at that age, normally 25 to 35 it starts to slowing everything down and maybe you do just don't see as big as a progress as someone who could just do bodybuilding and nothing else well, and i'd also point out kind of along the lines of what you're saying is remember too that stress and sleep are going to be factors yeah. that uh, enter enter into the equation and uh, sometimes that can be altered by family and children uh, come into play you have a child so uh that also can alter uh, results and, and needs to be factored in as well. And this is why I just have a dog like you, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. My dog is my son. He gives me no, no stress ever with my dog. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, so something I did want to talk about is I heard you just bring up very briefly on another podcast was uh, your max muscle plan. You were working on another version of that. And I've had the the original one for many years. And um, I'm sure there's stuff in there that you kind of are like, ah, kind of, I want to, I'm sure there's a lot you want to update. It, yeah. It's still a great resource, uh, but I'd love to maybe just pick out a few things that are going to be quite uniquely different with this book versus the old one, if you can give us some teasers. So the, yeah, there's quite a lot uh, in looking back over. So I still am very proud of it. Look, it's still a good book. I, I'm, uh, you'll get very good results from, I mean, the books, uh, I think has over a hundred thousand copies uh, that have been uh, sold. So a lot of, and I've gotten terrific uh, feedback on it, but it's been improved and substantially. So first of all, the mechanistic aspects we've just known from what I had, that was written in 2010. So it's a decade old now. So we basically I've updated all the scientific information in it. Um, a lot of the uh, um, training chapters have been tweaked. One of the ones, one of the things that uh, kind of apropos to this discussion is the training to failure, where I had, I was much more liberal with training to failure. And now I have uh, pulled back substantially on those recommendations, um, which I think makes a big difference. The volume, uh, I, I um, really uh, honed the volume aspect and talked about utilizing volume to as a tool to work more on weak areas. That's something I've experimented on. I think the research is really coming into play in this regard where we have a target volume, but how you kind of using a volume budget, if you will, where we have yeah. a certain amount of volume for the overall body. And it should, this is beyond the scope of this podcast. Maybe we'll do this again sometime and get into that. But um, I, one of my kind of pet peeves is when people talk about volume like every body part should have an equal amount of volume. And that's just not the way, yeah. just these aren't binary choices. It shouldn't be, you know, 10 to 20, it's kind of the default recommendation. I, and where my mindset has really gone based upon both experience and really the way the literature has uh, steered, uh, I think the uh, current thinking, the current uh, thought process is that 
um, there's a certain amount of volume that we can do overall when you add up all your sets and then trying to manipulate that volume to utilize it more for your weak areas and those which are strong points, you'd use less volume. So you maintain the total budget, if you will. Um, so a lot, anyway, a, a lot of tweaks to the training chapters and the uh, nutrition chapter has been substantially renovated. The nutri uh, nutrient timing chapter, as you probably can <laughs> imagine, I uh, was a big nutrient timing proponent and uh, that was um, born out in the first version and uh, based upon what I have learned and uh, research that we've carried out, I've, I've completely revised the nutrition chapter and expanded upon the nutrition. So it has a more substantial nutrition chapter. So it's, I think people are gonna be very pleased. I also have a Q, big Q and A section that I've added. So I've added in several chapters, including a Q and A that addresses topics of interest and in how to uh, manipulate the program going forward. So uh, it's about 30% new material and revised material. Amazing. Yeah, I know there's probably a lot of things that you wanted to update in there. And out of interest, I know the, the previous one was periodized. And that is something I guess is one of those things where there's not tons of research promoting periodization for hypertrophy. And I guess this is one where probably those advanced individuals I'd expect are the ones who are benefiting more from that is because often it's helping get around fatigue and adaptation and things. Is this program also like a long term kind of a macro cycle, as it were, and there's mesocycles? Yeah. So the basic structure, and I've used that structure, look, so you can say what you want, uh, and you're correct that the research is sketchy. Um, the studies that we have just aren't well delineated, but periodization is a concept. It's not a defined model. It's a, everyone can have their own iteration and ideas as to how to utilize. So it's, it's a basic concept of how to plan. Uh, and I think that's what gets lost sometimes in this in these debates that go forward. If we're looking at like the Matviev model uh, and, and trying to just say use that as an exact template, uh, then we can have discussions as to about that. But I, that's not the way I look at periodization. Periodization is a method for planning, and I think if you don't plan, then you're those who don't plan, uh, those who fail uh, fail to plan, plan to fail. That's the uh, axiom. And uh, yeah, it uses the basic template. And by the way, the study that you opened up with where it has a strength phase that goes uh, into a hypertrophy phase, that, that does kind of support uh, what I have laid out 10 years ago. So that's what, what I did mention that does yeah. uh, somewhat support my preconceived bias. So that, uh, that was good. But look, we're, we're a long way from that. I, I do know it works well, whether other things can work just as well. That it doesn't mean that other things might not work. I know this works. I've used it in hundreds and hundreds of high-level bodybuilders and and athletes uh, to maximize hypertrophy, and uh, it works. So, could something work? We talked about earlier. Could something work better conceivably? That's up to the individual. But I, I do want to also mention that one of the things that I um, another thing, by the way, that I I do is get into the concept of RIR, where I had used um, an RPE scale, which yeah. was confusing to a lot of people. I've now uh, implemented RIR to tra training, but here, here's, I think, a really important point. And one of the things that I do in the book, which I don't see done, unfortunately, in most other books, my uh, I provide a general template, just like research is a gives us guidelines. This basically the book gives guidelines, and I uh, harp on the importance of tweaking the program to individual needs. That this is not a defined program; you just follow it to the letter. That you need to use the sample workouts as that, and then um, utilize your own knowledge, your own uh, self. Uh, evaluation to move forward and to tweak the program. And I go into extensive detail about how to go about doing that. Amazing. Do you have a, a date in mind of when you're looking at launch? Uh, it's supposed to, uh, the, again, this is a human kinetics book, so it's ultimately up to them, but I think the target date is September of this year, okay. 2021. At least everyone by then should have gym access. So now I they can all so. get so jacked <laughs> on your program uh, throughout the, that time. So uh, that's very exciting. Uh, and 
actually, if I don't know if this is a quick question, but uh, a quick follow up. I know in the previous version, it was kind of a metabolite phase. And I know after more research has come out, metabolites have kind of been put into a bit of question of are they driving what we think they're driving? Are they as powerful of a, an effect? And I wonder if uh, they're, they're something that you have used in that program and uh, are they more liberal or less liberal? Uh, have you changed much of your thought process there? Well, first of all, the metabolic phase is still in, and, and that's not done specifically from a metabolite-driven hypertrophy standpoint. It's, as I discussed in the book and, and did then, it's more a function of trying to enhance your uh, lactate threshold so that when you, yeah. basically the, each phase is supposed to potentiate the ensuing phase. So there's a four-week um, metabolic phase that looks to, when you're using higher reps, there's some research showing that you can enhance your lactate threshold, your ability to clear lactic acid, which if you're then, let's say you then do the hypertrophy phase of your six to 12 reps, you can conceivably use, uh, get more repetitions at a given load because you are, you, you have a better ability to clear lactate and the peripheral fatigue will be diminished uh, to, to an extent. And there's, look, there's also some Evidence and again equivocal, uh, but there's some evidence that lighter load training may have preferential hypertrophy of type one muscle fibers. Now, our group carried out a study fairly recently, which, uh, which kind of I don't want to say disproved, but it certainly went against that theory. Uh, it would seem to, but but again, one study. Uh, yeah. That's why we carried out the studies. There have been other studies that would suggest there are uh, potential benefits. It certainly doesn't hurt. So uh, if you're then asking me, does do metabolites drive hypertrophy? I certainly think there is a logical rationale for it, but I also certainly don't think the evidence is anywhere clear near, anywhere near clear one way or another at this point. I will say that uh, those who have definitive opinions on this are simply not students of the literature, that they are basing that on their own cognitive biases, not on hard evidence. Cause we just don't have, there, there just isn't the evidence. There are, there is evidence showing there may be effects and there's evidence showing there might not be effects where there aren't effects and each one has certain limitations. So if you just want to pick and cherry pick and, and choose, say, I'm going to just go by this, which some people have done. Uh, and that is one thing that does bother me with um, what we are calling the evidence-based crowd is that uh, there's, somewhat of this dog eat dog mentality on the internet for people to uh, make a name for themselves. And it, it can be beneficial sometimes to take controversial standpoints, but it, to me that really, if you're doing it at the expense of science, that is anti-scientific and that is not in the spirit of evidence-based practice. And I, uh, I have issues with that. So um, not calling anyone out specifically. And some of the people I think have good intentions and maybe they just don't know better. They just don't have the um, insights into research that allow them to, uh, to scrutinize it in that context. But I will say that uh, at this point, mechanistically, we certainly, I think, have clear evidence that mechanical tension is the primary driver. And I've said that, but uh, I would encourage people to take a look at a paper that I co-authored review paper with, uh, it was lead authored by Henning Walker Hodge on the stimuli and sensors that drive hypertrophy. You could just, if you Google uh, my name and Walker Hodge, that's W-A-C-K-E-R-H-A-G-E, -E, uh, that paper will come up, it's open access. And we discuss the uh, what we know to date. It was published in 2019, so still quite current. And uh, what we know, what we don't know, and where we need to go. And uh, we, need to, we still have a, a long way to go before we have a good understanding of the true driver. The, what I would call the, uh, the confluence of how they may interact, because we can say what happens when one is given, let's say, in a test tube, but does, let's say, metabolic stress, I think there's quite good evidence that it has hypertrophic potential. But really, the question is, does it have additive effects in the context of traditional resistance training to, or perhaps some other technique you'd use to drive hypertrophy, maybe blood flow restriction training, et cetera. And those yeah. are things that we, uh, we still have 
quite a ways to go before we uh, delineate. Yeah, I think that's really well said, especially people kind of cherry picking or trying to be black and white with statements to get a response. Because unfortunately, I think with social media now and Instagram and you get a certain amount of likes if you are controversial and you get your kind of dogma out there and you get a camp built up. And unfortunately, like you said, that's kind of anti-science. You're not looking at the evidence as a whole. And Well, yeah. and, and, and I just want to add to that. So my real issue, I mean, people are entitled to their opinions, but my real issue is that by being anti-scientific in that respect, there are people, the vast majority of the public, look, my, I'm an educator. My whole life's work is to um, educate the general public on the importance of taking a scientific approach, an evidence-based approach. So understanding the pillars, you have your scientific evidence and then, but most people don't, and then you're going to use your expertise along with the needs and abilities of the individual. Most people don't have the ability to critically analyze science. So they're going to rely upon your authority figures. And if this person is an influencer on Instagram or whatever, on on whatever social media platform, and they're espousing these uh, very strong opinions that aren't uh, supported or or that, or that are cherry picked to support a confirmation bias, uh, you're going to be, you're going to have uh, impressions. You're going to be impressioning, if that is a word, um, a, a lot of people, uh, and ultimately it then skews uh, what we're trying to accomplish in this. And, and that, that's where I really have the problem is, yeah. is the effect it has on the general public because uh, it makes all our jobs more difficult when we try to then educate people on how to be evidence-based practitioners. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, particularly with uh, the metabolites anyway, it's a case of, like you said, there is not really evidence, strong evidence to support it necessarily at the moment, but there is certainly not strong evidence to counter it. And I think these are this is one of the kind of, I guess it comes back from the Arnie era in terms of the pump and everything. And he spoke about that that element and he certainly seemed to think it had something to do with what was going on and whether or not it was just happening alongside and it was just like a bonus that he got this uh, great feeling that he described. Um, who knows? But I guess at this stage, you'd at least say, don't actively chase the pump, actively chase. If you're going to chase something, I guess, is more so progressive overload, although probably chasing that too much is going to lead you down uh, the wrong route as well in terms of injuries and things as we spoke about with failure training. But uh, it's just, yeah, kind of putting people in the right direction, I guess, with the science at the moment. Agreed. Awesome. Brad, I want to say a massive thank you uh, for chatting to you for this hour. Uh, I always appreciate catching up with you. Uh, It's always a good refresher and gets me back on my scientific track if I ever, ever dwindle away from it, which I hope I never do. Uh, But I want to say a massive thank you. And uh, if people want to catch up with you, keep up with you, Brad, and uh, importantly, can kind of get a copy of this book as soon as it comes out or any of your previous texts, where should they head? Yeah, you can just follow me on uh, social media. My uh, primary platforms at this point are Instagram uh, and I, Twitter. I do more targeted research uh, stuff. I've uh, not used Facebook as much recently just because the algorithms just have really gone to crap, uh, for lack of a better word. Uh, I, I'm still on Facebook and, uh, and do a little there, but, uh, but yeah, just search me out on, on social media. And I do have that uh, website that we discussed, lookgreatnaked.com, but, uh, hit me up. And, uh, my job again is, is in educating. So hopefully, uh, hopefully that's making an impact. Fantastic. I'll make sure that's all linked below so people can get hold of you and, uh, yeah, we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Always my pleasure. Yep. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community 
that is then benefiting from another a really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website they will get early access to our podcast you can access us ask us questions the community aspect we have a forum there you can ask questions but also you can you can lock your journey there's also going to be courses on there courses presentations on different topics discount of past seminar footage we will log our journey as well we'll start vlogging we're going to have documentaries our entire athletic journey furthermore they get access to an exercise video library the exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy we're going to go through those in depth telling you how to execute them we kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're going to be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.